Here's how much credit Biden deserves for these hostage releases. Zero. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Steve Hilton Show. The big story of the week uh, still. We're all focused, of course, on what's going on in the Middle East. And it's all been about the hostages, the hostage releases that have been happening in exchange for prisoners, um, the the pause in the fighting that has enabled that to happen. That's what we're all focused on. And for good reasons. And, and you know, we, we have to start this whole conversation by being incredibly clear that the release of any hostage is, of course, something that we all welcome and celebrate without any reservation whatsoever. And we're thrilled and delighted that that happened. And, and some of these stories are so, so, you know, heartbreaking, heartwarming, whatever whatever term you want to use. We just moved to tears. I know I have been. I mean, just that, that image of the grandmother who is 85 years old, Holocaust survivor. Do you remember her? And she was, it was one of the most sickening images of the whole thing. Um, that we saw after October the 7th, taken on a, on a golf cart, I think it was, abducted and held hostage, released now. Of course, that's something that we celebrate. That absolutely heartbreaking interview, do you remember, with the, with the father who, whose nine-year-old daughter was missing? And in the end, when they came and told him, the, the Israeli authorities, I believe, at the kibbutz told him that they thought she was dead. And he said, yes was my reaction, because I thought I'd rather that she was dead than being held by these savages. Well, it turns out that she's alive and now has been reunited with her father. These are incredible stories on a human level. We have to, we have to acknowledge that. But, you know, we're, we're also here to analyze the politics and the policy. And there is politics going on here and policy and diplomacy. And that's what I want to talk about today, because one of the things that has really sickened me, frankly, is the way that the Biden administration and Biden officials, um, aided and abetted, as always, by the media, have tried to claim credit for this. Here's how much credit Biden deserves for these hostage releases. Zero. Zero credit. And yet they're trying to brag about it like, like it's some triumph. It's absolutely sickening. Just listen to some of the things that they've been saying. Listen to some of the things that these stenographers and sycophants in the White House press corps have been saying as they describe what's going on, oh, you know, working the phones and Biden's diplomacy. Just listen to some of this stuff. This has been the product of a lot of hard work and weeks of personal engagement for me and my team. A lot of folks involved in this, including President Biden, uh, at a very senior level, he was very personally engaged uh, in, in helping this deal get over the finish line. We have reporting that he worked the phones all weekend long to try to make sure this hostage deal would go through. Got a guy in there who's more equipped to do this and is more successful at doing this than any president since Bush 41. Of course, it's literally true that Biden and his officials, more likely the officials, have been involved, and the Qataris and all the rest of it. And the clearly, this has happened through a process of negotiation and diplomacy. But they don't deserve any credit for this. Why? Because it's most likely that none of this would have happened in the first place if it wasn't for their total incompetence and their weakness and their appeasement of Iran. Because that's what led up to this. The years of Biden and his team appeasing and enriching Iran taking off sanctions so that the Iranian regime 
was enriched and emboldened, could fund Hamas and the other terror groups. So this all happened. It was Biden's weakness that led to an environment where Hamas thought they could get out, get away with this. The planning that went on, do you remember all the reporting of that before October the 7th? The Iranians coordinating with Hamas and the other terror groups, all of that a direct result of Biden's appeasement. And now he turns around and tries to claim credit for a tiny piece of good news. You still have, you know, nearly 200 hostages left there, of course. And he's trying to claim credit for this. It's absolutely disgusting. And it's the same exact pattern you saw with Ukraine, by the way, where it was Biden's appeasement of Russia that led to Putin being emboldened to launch his invasion. Look at what Biden did, you know, on, on Nord Stream and all the rest of it. Appeasing Putin. He launches the invasion and then Biden turns around and says, oh, well, let's assemble an international coalition and stand up to this aggression, all the rest of it. And the media turn around and say, isn't Biden brilliant with his years of foreign policy experience? He's done such a great job, you know, assembling this international coalition to stand up to Putin. It's the exact same pattern, a disaster of weakness and appeasement leading to humanitarian catastrophe. And then afterwards in the cleanup operation, they sort of salvage some crumb of decency and they praise it as a triumph and claim it as a triumph. It is just absolutely disgusting. It really is. I just, I just can't believe that people fall for it. I mean, what we have seen in action under this Biden administration is a catastrophically bad foreign policy that, as we've said before, has just emboldened the worst people in the world to cause mayhem and chaos. And the world is a much more dangerous place as a result. He doesn't deserve any credit at all. Probably wouldn't have happened without him and his stupid policies, this ideology of appeasement that we see. And then the other people, unbelievably, <laughs> who seem to be, you know, in some quarters getting credit around this hostage release situation is Hamas. Can you believe that? That people say, oh, isn't it good, decent Hamas? You know, they're so compassionate and humanitarian releasing the hostages. Isn't that nice? Look how well you've, it's just absolutely shocking to me. You just can't, just like at the beginning of this, it's, it was so shocking to see that the scale of the anti-Semitism that we saw in America. And now you see People turning around and and, and 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 praising Hamas for the way they treated the hostages, like they're sort of nice people. They're humanitarians, really. They're not vicious, murderous, savage, barbaric terrorists. They're humanitarians because they're nice and they sort of wave to the kids and the kids wave back and they, they make them write letters. I mean, it's just sickening what they've been doing. <laughs> people are saying that they deserve some kind of credit. And not just sort of random people. I mean, there, there was one example of a professor. And there's many more. University of Wisconsin, I think it was, a professor turning around and saying this kind of stuff. It is just unbelievable. And then the final thing I'll say about the hostages, because, it, again, it shows the sickness and the moral collapse that we have here in our society. I don't know if you saw this clip. This was Kay Burley on Sky News in England with a just sort of jaw-droppingly... I don't know what the right word is, stupid, offensive, you know, disgusting question to an Israeli spokesperson about the ratio of hostage releases to Palestinian prisoner releases. Just, just listen to this clip. 
I was speaking to a hostage negotiator this morning. He made the comparison between the 50 hostages, hostages that Hamas has promised, um, promised to release, as opposed to the 150 prisoners that are Palestinians that Israel has said that it will release. And he made the comp comparison between the numbers and the fact that does Israel not think that Palestinian lives are valued as highly as Israeli lives? That is an astonishing accusation. If we could release one prisoner for every one hostage, we would obviously do that. We're operating in horrific circumstances. We're not choosing to release these prisoners who have blood on their hands. We are talking about people who have been convicted of stabbing and shooting attacks. Notice the question of proportionality doesn't interest Palestinian supporters when they are able to get more of their prisoners out. But really, it is outrageous to suggest that the fact that we are willing to release prisoners who are convicted of terrorism offenses, more of them than we are getting our own innocent children back, somehow suggests that we don't care about Palestinian lives. Really, that's a disgusting accusation. <laughs> Just did you see the reaction of the, of, quite rightly if you're watching on video that the 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 spokesperson there just like his eyes like could not believe that question what you're saying that because the Israelis are releasing three prisoners for one hostage that's the ratio three to one that's been negotiated that that somehow they don't value Palestinian life what what is this like by the way first of all these are criminals in jail that's been through a legal process. So they're releasing criminals in exchange for innocent civilians that are being taken hostage. What, you think that these evil Israelis, you know, they, they're really happy about releasing three criminals for every one innocent hostage? It's just insane. You cannot believe it. They, they call that dehumanizing. And then, and, and you think, well, that's just an isolated case. That's just like one, you know, ridiculous person who just doesn't know what they're talking about. But I heard it here in America. Today, again, on NPR. The ratio is not uh, particularly surprising. In fact, it's relatively low in comparison to the previous ratios. Does it dehumanize, does it dehumanize Palestinians' as ratio as if their lives aren't as valuable? I don't think in the exchange uh, ratio it dehumanizes. I think where it comes in more in the casualty ratio. The exact same language. Is this, does this ratio show that the, the, the Israelis are dehumanizing Palestinians? No, I tell you who's dehumanizing people. The people who went in there and murdered in cold blood children and ba but babies in an oven. That's dehumanizing. Raping grandmothers and Holocaust, that's dehumanizing. Killing people and killing children in front of their parents and then killing the parents. That's dehumanizing. Don't lose sight of that. The fact that people have lost sight of all of that, this, this moral equivalence that's being given is so shocking and disgusting, and we must not stop calling it out. All right, so here's an interesting one for our policy uh, conversation today, which was an article that appeared just recently in the New York Times. It was from an opinion writer, but he's also a bit of a reporter as well, a guy called Nick Christoph, Nicholas Christoph uh, with a K, K-R-I-S-T-O-F, if you want to look him up. I don't always agree with everything he writes, but he's not, you know, he, he is the New York Times and people have views about that. But I've, I've always found him to be very thoughtful, very fair, and he's clearly a very humane and compassionate um, reporter in the sense that he's always he, he goes behind the headlines. He's not particularly political. He's trying. He focuses a lot on policy and does does from a very human and compassionate perspective. I have always found, like I said, don't always agree with him, but I always read him. And I, and I think it's interesting. This was very interesting. He wrote an article just now, a long piece in The New York Times. Here's the headline. 
Here's how Houston is fighting homelessness and winning. And he specifically, he went to Houston, Texas, and he looked at the state of play in terms of homelessness on the streets of Houston um, and compared it to what's going on in cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco and Seattle and Portland, West Coast cities run by Democrats. Houston is actually run, it's a red state, of course, Texas, but Houston's run by Democrats, has been for a while. Big city run by Democrats. So he's actually contrasting um, two different Democrat uh, approaches to homelessness. And in a way, what that does, I think, is really helpfully frame what many of us are experiencing here in California and the West Coast, which is not just Democrats. And this is the hard left Democrats, the extremism that we're seeing play out in California and other Western states compared to a different approach um, elsewhere where Democrats are in charge, certainly in Houston. So the numbers um, and he says very clearly that there's still homelessness in Houston. There's still people sleeping out on the streets and in parks and public places. And that's that's bad. Um, on the other hand, it's dropped, you know, in the last sort of decade or so, 60 percent. And they did have the fifth largest homeless population in Houston in the whole country. And that has massively declined. So they've had some success, not perfect, not total success some success in dealing with homelessness. And the article goes into explaining how they went about it and the approach and the kind of management philosophy and the Houston government that made this happen and so on. And that's all interesting. But to me, what was really interesting about this whole piece were, were, were the references that were made on more, more than one place in this article where, where it really revealed how you're starting to see, even on the left, and this guy, Nick, Nick Christoph, he's, he's, you know, he, I think he tried to run he was disqualified or not disqualified. He, he wasn't able to run in the end on a technicality. He ran, I think he's from Oregon and ran for governor of Oregon as a Democrat. So he's clearly a Democrat, but, but he's reporting on a couple of things in this article that are just, just showing how it's got so bad and so extreme and so crazy on the, uh, on the left. And it's certainly in places like California that even Democrats are saying, look, we've had enough of this. It's ridiculous. And there are a couple of examples of this. I just wanted to highlight. One of them is about the absolutely disastrous effect of regulations um, and, 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 and all this sort of crazy stuff and taxes that go into creating the housing crisis and the homelessness that we see here in California. So he says here, right, I'm just quoting from the piece, building a, a small one bedroom apartment unit in Houston can cost less than $200,000, while Los Angeles spent as much as $837,000 per apartment for people who are homeless. And this is an issue we've talked about here before many times, which is housing and so on, why it costs so much. But there is a connection to homelessness. And we've covered that story. I mean, nearly a million dollars to build a one apartment unit for, as, as a, for, for homeless people. That is the direct result of these hard left policies in California, that, that in terms of environmental regulations and zoning and all these other regulations and then the taxes on top of that in, ha, taxes on house building they're called impact fees charged by local government to the people who build the houses they're basically a tax on house building all of this stuff the high taxes and the high regulations making it impossible to build anything so expensive to build anything in california now the new york times is even calling that out nick christoph really interesting the other the other thing i thought was interesting was was the the, the question of zoning and again, it's a regulatory issue. But if you talk to anyone who's familiar with the different, you know, with, with Houston, with Texas, actually, but particularly Houston versus California, Houston is just very, very open in terms of, of building. You can build out and build places very free and you can go there and it costs cost you very little. 
and you can build housing and people are building housing and people are moving to Houston because they want that kind of lifestyle. They want a single family home in the suburbs, safe, secure, affordable. And you're getting that in Texas because the Texas authorities, in this case, Democrats, allow it to happen. In California, by contrast, it's completely the opposite. And you can't, and they demonize what they call sprawl, and you can't build houses and you know, try and force people to live in apartment units, even though many people don't want that. When they have a family and, they, and children that they want to raise, they want a nice you know, yard and, 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 and so on. And so this is just, it, 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 you know, this is a real philosophical divide. And here again is, is, a, is a quote from Nicholas Kristof in this article. Quote, housing trade-offs can be uncomfortable for liberals like me. We like some of the benefits of zoning that protect our neighborhoods and prevent urban sprawl. But the last couple of decades have underscored that the downside is more expensive housing and higher rates of homelessness. Yes, exactly. And so this, what this really illustrates is that this hard left democratic politics that prioritizes these ideological concepts like we must be against urban sprawl. We must be. We must do everything um, driven by the climate extremism. All this stuff ends up being anti-human. It actually really hurts people, real people. And the consequence, at its extreme end, is massive rates of homelessness, which is totally inhuman and disgusting, and the opposite of the kind of compassion and justice that these Democrats talk about. And what was really interesting to me is that you now see more and more people on the left waking up to the fact that this extremism from the Democrats has been a complete disaster and needs to be taken on. Now, will they actually reverse? Or will you, will you have people not just sort of writing about this in the newspaper, as you see here in the New York Times, but actually challenging it in the political system, I very much doubt. Because here in California, up and down the West Coast, there really aren't that many examples of what people may, may once have called moderate Democrats. They're not. Why? Because the power structures within the party are just all pushing in this extreme hard left direction. Um, the unions, the especially the government unions that control so many of the politicians, because they fund them and, and, you know, do their political activism and, and door knocking and all that kind of, you know, the machinery of elections. So much of that is done and paid for by the government unions. They love this stuff. And the government unions are controlled now by activists, by hard left activists. And the activist class generally is so powerful. The base as you, you, you might say, with the, with the Democrats, they, they just completely controlled by them. So it's good news that from a policy perspective, you've got people like Nick Kristof in the New York Times actually really starting to challenge some of these hard left um, ideological approaches and showing the failure that they result in and the, and the inhumanity that they cause. I don't know. We'll wait and see if the politicians follow suit. I very much doubt it. I think if you really want to change this, it's not gonna, the change isn't going to come from the Democrats. And joining us today for California Corner is our friend Susan Shelley. Susan, it's a big week for California. California is going to be in the spotlight um, because we have this debate coming up. We, we're speaking on Tuesday uh, morning, you and I. The debate is on Thursday evening on Fox News. Sean Hannity uh, will be moderating. I don't know if that's the right word <laughs> between uh, Ron DeSantis <laughs> and Gavin Newsom. And it's being billed as the great red state versus blue state debate. And actually, there is a lot of truth to that. Because if you look at California and Florida, um, those two states really are pursuing 
very different approaches on pretty much every issue. So it is a it is a worthwhile uh, debate in terms of the substance. If we can get to the substance, who knows what it's going to what's going to turn into? Um, we'll see on Thursday night. But what what are you looking for? What are you expecting? What are your thoughts about all of this? Well, on the bright side, it might educate people about federalism, which is that each state governs itself. And then the Mm -hmm. national government has limited powers in certain areas. And that's kind of been erased from the public knowledge base. People think the federal government started with that. Yeah. People think the federal government just sees problems and jumps in and fixes them. And if they don't fix them, then something's wrong with the government. But actually, freedom is a condition that exists under a government of limited power. They can't just come in and do anything to anybody because somebody wants it. That would be theft. That would not be freedom. And so when you have the California governor and the Florida governor talking about their policy differences, to the extent that they do, what you're seeing is that the people of Florida want something different than the people of California, and they're entitled to have it. And that is what keeps the country together. Instead of balkanizing into a bunch of different countries, the way organizations sometimes tend to break up and turn into one turns into two turns into six, because no one can agree on anything. So federalism is a really point. It's it's something people don't understand. But it's the great strength of the United States. Let me just amplify that. I'm thrilled that you started with that, because I feel so strongly about this. Um, I, I go on about it all the time. It's not just an idea that, of course, underpins everything in the Constitution and the framers and the Federalist Papers all about um, the, the limitations put on, on government power in all sorts of different ways. That's what checks and balances is all about and so on. But specifically to the point that you just made, it's also in the 10th Amendment, it's part of the Bill of Rights, which is the 10th Amendment, very clear. No one ever talks about the 10th Amendment or not enough. So with First Amendment, Second Amendment, for obvious reasons, we talk about that. That's quite right. The 10th Amendment, incredibly important. And I'm almost quoting directly here, the, the, the powers um, not, not, item, not listed in the Constitution, this is the quote, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Um, so it's really clear. If it's not in the Constitution specifically, mm-hmm. then the states should have power or individual people. Exactly. And that, that, is, that is completely ignored. I mean, if you, if you take that literally, and, you know, we are invited by the conservative originalist, you know, um, philosophy when it comes to the Constitution to do that in all sorts of other areas. If you take that, if you take the originalist interpretation, the literal interpretation of that, huge swaths of the federal government are unconstitutional. Because the, the education is not in the Constitution, housing and urban development, all these massive agencies and bureaucracies telling the states what to do, funding, taking money from the states, right, right, from the economic activity that is in the states through federal income tax and then re- spending it on stuff shouldn't happen. Exactly. And that's how they've done it. They, they worked around the Constitution through this massive taxation and massive funding controls. If you don't do what they want, they will pull your funding. And that's how they have coerced the states into doing these various things. There have also been a number of court decisions, sometimes for very good intentions, that have overrun the Tenth Amendment and said, well, no, we're not going to let the states do any of these things. The state constitutions have bills of rights in them also. And those could be controlling. But instead, so many different areas of life have now been essentially supervised by the federal courts. And that's a mess because that makes the judicial nominations very political. And they shouldn't be political. They're lifetime appointments to the federal court for stability and to be insulated from politics. And instead, 
they've created a situation over a, roughly 100 years of decisions that gradually creep over the state's exactly. powers and the courts have taken over a lot of things. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's a, such an important point. Let's talk about the politics of this event and what it means. I mean, when it was set up a few months ago, DeSantis was still, you know, right, I don't want to say riding high. He, I mean, it was, it's been a long time since he was leading in the polls. That was, that was almost a year ago in November, I believe, 2022. And then it's, since then, it's been a downward trajectory for DeSantis, upward for Donald Trump. Now Donald Trump has a commanding lead. And in many polls, DeSantis is not even second, he's third. Um, but when it was set up, he was still seen as the kind of dominant non-Trump candidate. Um, and so it was sort of billed as this is, the, this is the debate that we should be having because no one wants Biden and Trump shouldn't be there, according to those who hate Trump. And so it should really be Newsom and DeSantis. That's the, that's the election debate we're not having. Now that DeSantis isn't really, I mean, I don't know, we'll see what happens, of course. We, you know, we're a couple of you know, months away from Iowa and so on. Feels like, what, what's the point of this? <laughs> exactly. Well, I don't think there is a point. Uh, this is a sideshow. And uh, it's an interesting argument between two people who would like to be president and possibly never, ever will. Gavin Newsom, in particular, has a very uphill climb historically as a Democratic governor from California. A Republican governor from California demonstrated that he could get Democratic votes and Ronald Reagan was elected president. Uh, it's, it's not easy for a Democrat who is catering to the left side of California, which is the left side of the country, yeah. it's not easy for someone like that to run in the other states and win. There are a lot of positions he holds that are just not going to sell. And you can just start with the Second Amendment and the fact that he wants to amend the Constitution to restrict the Second Amendment rights that currently exist. That's just not going to sell in 45 out of the 50 states. So... That's yes. that's an example of how, why he's really got an uphill climb to become president if he if that's what he intends to do. Yeah, well, it's, I think it's obvious to everyone that that is what he intends to do, and that's why he's setting this up, has set this up and encouraged it. And he has a personal relationship with Sean Hannity. I think that goes back a few years. So I think that's how this all, you know, became a reality. But the the point you make is exactly right, which is that you, you can imagine Gavin Newsom winning a democratic primary because he, you know, to be honest, he's the preeminent Democrat, it seems to me, apart from Biden at this point, you know, who else is there? I mean, there are others who get mentioned when you talk about future presidential candidates or even this time around, if Biden drops out for whatever reason, people mention, uh, apart from Gavin Newsom, you know, Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan and the guy from Illinois, Pritzker, and, you know, a couple of others. Um, but they're they're not in the same league. I think one thing that you could, you've just got to hand it to Gavin Newsom over the past year or so, and it really started when he released that ad, and it was all about targeting Florida. Do you remember he had that ad saying that California was the real freedom state, and it was very and, and everyone said, well, what's he doing this for? Why is he spending money on an ad? To, well, it's it was the first shot in a very very clear strategy to elevate himself as the preeminent Democratic politician. And he's done that politically. That's been a huge success for him. And so he is seen as the as the obvious choice if uh, either if, if, if Biden doesn't make it this time or for 2028. 
But actually, to your point, in, that's not where the general election will be won. That will be won in those, you know, swing states like Arizona, Georgia, all the ones we know, Pennsylvania and so on. And there it's a totally different story in terms of his appeal. There are two things that make me think he's not ready for prime time, other than his entire record. One is that he refused to do the debate in front of a live studio audience. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a real tell, because if you can't handle what a studio audience is going to say in reaction to your words, you're not ready for national politics. I mean, welcome to the NFL. If you can't be in front of a studio audience on a Fox TV show, you can't talk to half the country. He had to have some snappy one-liners ready and, and be able to answer any boos or cheers or whatever that came out. So he wasn't ready. And the other thing that says he's not ready is he has not filed with the Federal Election Commission as a presidential candidate. So he keeps ducking out of question and answer on real issues by saying, oh, I'm not a candidate. Well, he is a candidate, but he won't file the papers and open himself to the questions and the scrutiny that comes with being a national candidate. There's a lot that he has not been asked. Personal finances, uh, his entire record in California, his energy policy. There is a lot that he hasn't been asked because he's not a candidate. And until he actually has the nerve to stand in the arena as a candidate, I think it's just fundraising and TV. Yes. And the other thing that's interesting is that you have, let's let's talk about the record now and get into all of that. And this will be the very it'll be very interesting to see how well briefed and fact based the two of them get DeSantis and Newsom, because in previous encounters um, with what, you know, where he's been challenged. He hasn't been challenged effectively. Newsom hasn't been challenged effectively enough with the facts. And so he kind of breezes past. And, you know, he is a very good politician. He's just a Britain. So I'll give you a good example. So we you, you touched on it, the energy policy, the gas, you know, the gas prices in California, way higher than the rest of the country as a direct result of Democrat policy. We, you and I have talked about this many times. Specific policies that are unique to California, a direct tax that puts up the price, the, re, the regulations on oil refining that increases the cost and therefore the price, etc., Right. So there's there's specific things that put up the gas prices consumers pay in California that are not applicable anywhere else. And they're the direct result of Democrat policy. When challenged on that, he he goes into this, you know, I have to say just purely in the presentation terms, I think pretty kind of effective kind of rant about the oil company. Yeah, it's terrible. I remember this. This is when he, he spoke to Sean Hannity after the last debate and Sean Hannity put to him the gas prices. He said, yeah, it's terrible. People are being ripped off. By the by, the oil companies and it's really disgraceful. Yeah, they are high, and I'm really mad about it. And that's what you know, like on and on, like this. But actually, say, well, hang on a second. What if it's the oil companies? Why are they only ripping off California if it's their fault? Why, exactly. is it, are they different oil companies in Florida? No, it's, <laughs> it's nothing to do with it. But like, you really want to make. Sure, I mean, will DeSantis be able to bring the facts? And the arguments, you know, like do a real debate prep, you know, like what's Newsom likely to say? What has he said before when challenged on this? What's the best answer? Well, I don't know how good Governor DeSantis is in a in a debate. He's debated the other Republican candidates. It seems like he's falling in the polls after every one of those performances. So I think I, maybe maybe he'll be better against a Democrat. Certainly he has a good record in Florida and there's much to like about him. and. We'll see 
how this comes out. But for this year, we're really looking not at racehorses, but at Clydesdales. It's a wonderful <laughs> show, but they are not going to win. Not this year and yeah. not next year. And uh, we'll, it, it, it's, a, it's an interesting discussion of policy differences and personalities. And it's a lot of publicity and it's a lot of fun, but it's just a show. I'm sure it'll be a good show. But then the interesting thing will be like, it's a simple way of, I think, of thinking about it. And we'll see how this turns out. So I agree with you about DeSantis's record on everything, you know, on tax and crime. You know, he's, he's got a very strong record as a governor. That's why people are mo- and, you know, people are moving to Florida uh, because he's got a good record and done a good job. And people are moving out of California because Newsom and the Democrats have done a bad job. So that the substance is very much in DeSantis's favor. But as he's shown, as you just alluded to, he's just not a great candidate. And so in, in a way, you could say you've got this contrast where you have on the, on, on the, with DeSantis, you know, you know, good governor, bad candidate. And with Newsom, it's almost the opposite. You know, terrible governor in right. terms of the record, but actually pretty good at the politics, pretty good at, be, at, at just the talk. And so we'll see if the substance can win through, because on the substance, there's no question that, that if we go back to the framing, you know, red state versus blue, blue state, the record is incredibly clear that the red states typified by Florida um, versus California, but actually you see in the other red states versus the other blue states, the red state model of more freedom, less government, lower taxes, you know, less regulation is winning. No question. I hope they talk about education because that yes. is really a state issue and very different records on education, very different records during the pandemic, very different records in dealing with the teachers unions, very different records, very different outcomes. And I really hope that they talk about that because, as you said, it's not a federal responsibility. It's a state responsibility. And you have policies that are creating outcomes and everybody should know what those policies are and why they're having the outcomes that they're having and make decisions accordingly when they vote for state representatives yes. because it can make a big difference. And education is a very important issue and an ongoing issue. Some issues in politics are, are transient. They come and they go. Education all the time. It's important every year. So I hope they talk about that and educate the country about policy choices. Exactly. And you just look at that. I mean, on that specific issue. So, you know, we can predict how that one's going to go. Gavin Newsom will be going on and on about banning books and, and and all that. He's obsessed with it, you know, banning books. And look at him. He's, he's, he says he's Mr. Freedom, but he's banning books in libraries. That's not, that's un-American. You can imagine him going on a riff around that. And then, you know, you would hope DeSantis would have the information to say, well, hang on a second. You, why are you talking about banning books in my state when in your state, Kids can't read books. They can't read at all. You have the lowest literacy of any state. And that's true. That's what yes. we have in California, the lowest literacy of any state, even yes. though we have the highest spending per student of any state. Well, I, the, the book banning is especially interesting in a televised debate because you can't show the books. You can't show what they're putting in the right. schools because it's not fit for television. You can't show those pictures. And yet these are in children's libraries. And if people come in and they say, well, this shouldn't be in a children's library, and Newsom says, that's book banning, and you want to hold up the book on television and say, well, we want this to not be in children, you can't do it. So the, every time there's a debate, whether it's rap lyrics or anything else about obscenity, it's always distorted by the fact that you can't print the thing in a newspaper and you can't show it on television. So it's yes. a challenge to communicate what you're doing. 
they're very good at framing things as bans when you're talking about common sense restrictions. So that what what they're really talking about is book banning, uh, age related restrictions, which we which we've been around for years. You know, in terms of movies, for example, you have a rating for right. movies, and you don't allow you know five year olds to go into a you know <laughs> sort of hard, a movie with sort of extreme violence and sex scenes. You know that that's been around for for a year. Everyone's used to that. It's, it's a good not idea banning movies. It's a good it's idea a to ban. do. If you put age, if you had a an organization that put age ratings on children's books, that would be a very clear way to explain what's in exactly. the books without putting it on television. Exactly, that's not a ban. Same with abortion. When you, I mean, again, it's just this argument. Glenn Youngkin found this out just now in Virginia, where he ran on what he thought was a clever campaign to say, you know, like polling shows that whatever, you know, eighty percent of people on abortion agree with the position that's around fifteen weeks. So that's what he ran on and not he, he wasn't up for election, but he, he, he led the campaign in Virginia for the state legislature um, and put that at the centerpiece, a 15 week restriction on abortion. They just called it a ban. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what they did. They just said it's a ban. And so many people would hear that word and think, all right, they're outlawing abortion. That wasn't true at all. But they, it's, it's, it's just it's a very, very cynical use of language. But that is politics. And so you just got to be better at it than them. It's a game in that sense. And you, and it's not enough to have the good substance. And that's what coming back to the debate. That's what we'll, we'll see if DeSantis can um, do anything about that. Um, I don't know. It'd be interesting. It'll also be interesting to see if the country really cares. You know, we're, <laughs> yeah, we're very interested, but are they, I, what if the ratings are terrible and no one cares? That's going to be doomed for both of them. That'll be interesting. Yeah, that'd be very interesting. Well, look, from a substantive point of view, philosophical point of view, I, 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 we do need to have that conversation about the direction of, 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 of you know, certainly our individuals, certainly in California, we need to have the direct, we have the conversation and we are and we will about, you know, because everyone can see we're heading in the wrong direction. And we need to go in a different direction. Whether this debate is going to, you know, illuminate that, I don't, I don't know. We'll see. Well, let's talk about it next week um, afterwards and review what happened. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Steve. All right, then. Time to get something off my chest. I'm going to get two things off my chest. They're connected. There's some reflections on the holiday. We just had Thanksgiving. Um, We were in Hawaii for Thanksgiving. It's become our tradition. We love going to the islands. We went there for the first time in the year we moved here, uh, 2012, 2012. Um, and, you know, from Hawaii's a long way from England. So <laughs> I just seen images and I had this sort of romantic idea of Hawaii and, and, and loved the idea of going there. But it's so far uh, that people you just don't go uh, from England. And so now we're living in California. And so let's go to Hawaii. We went for the first time Thanksgiving 2012, actually in the summer that year and back in Thanksgiving absolutely loved it and so that's now become our tradition we go there and sometimes family members join us from uh from from england or elsewhere um and we have a wonderful time we go to all the different islands we've got to know them incredibly well it's all fantastic we love hawaii that's the sort of starting point for this i absolutely love hawaii no question it's a wonderful place i feel the aloha spirit every time we land on one of the islands this time we were on the big island and, you know, my boys, they love to do the one of the things they really love doing, apart from, you know, being, you know, body surfing and all that stuff in the ocean is cliff jumping and doing sort of jungle hikes and getting to an amazing waterfall and climbing up and jumping, climbing up rocks and jumping in the water. They absolutely love that. So we spend a lot of our time looking for waterfalls and those kind of places. And it's just it's just if you want to see something that is the absolute opposite of the Aloha spirit, just take a look at this photo 
that I took outside um, an attraction where actually you can't go uh, for obvious reasons because they tell you not you can't climb up and jump in and so on. This is outside a place called Boiling Pots, which is part of a waterfall system on the Hilo side of the Big Island. People know that. I just I had to laugh when I saw this sign, just like as I put on the post on X, you know, that the no energy is strong in these Hawaii bureaucrats. I mean, can you believe it? It's just like you show up to a lovely, beautiful place. And it's just this absolute sort of unbelievable kind of array of signs saying, no, 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 you can't do this, can't do that, can't do anything else. We're telling you no. And it's just, of course, you know, each one of those things you could probably say, yeah, fair enough. But there was just something so kind of overwhelmingly negative and bureaucratic about this. And then funnily enough, I was just looking through some of our photos and they're all, it's all over the place in Hawaii. And, it, and, and you think, well, yes, bureaucrats everywhere. They tell you no the whole time and it's just annoying and ridiculous. But actually, Hawaii has a particular problem with this because so much of Hawaii is actually the government. It's an amazing fact. Hawaii has a, a larger proportion of its citizens working for the government than any other state. It's 30%. It's amazing. Of work for the government in Hawaii. And so no wonder you, you have this kind of explosion of bureaucracy and all over the place. Um, it didn't ruin it for us. We love Hawaii. It's just funny and ridiculous. But honestly, um, I think little less, no, a little more yes would work wonders. And then the other thing, the other holiday thing that I was looking at, obviously a big part of holidays, food and praying the Thanksgiving meal and so on. And <laughs> I just saw this little kind of mini, you know, storm erupt on X over Whoopi Goldberg, of all people, um, and, you know, not getting into her politics here, but just just as a sort of human being, put out a video of her family meal, and she was preparing the turkey, and she was stuffing the turkey, I think, there's a video, you can watch the video, without wearing shock horror latex gloves. And she was kind of excoriated by certain quarters in, of, of, on social media for, for doing something so insanitary, unsanitary, whatever the word is, so horrifically dangerous as actually preparing a meal for her family or helping to prepare a meal without wearing these ridiculous latex gloves. I was like, what is wrong with you people? Why do we have this absolute kind of explosion of people feeling they have to wear these disgusting, creepy, weird latex gloves and anything to do with food preparation. I mean, what is wrong with you? I mean, for thousands of years, you know, humans have survived meals being prepared with people who sort of bare hands. As she, as she said, you know, wash your hands. It's like basic hygiene. And frankly, even if not, I mean, honestly, what's wrong with a bit of bacteria and dirt? And why do we have these creepy latex gloves? They're showing up everywhere. You go to restaurants and some of the servers are wearing them. It's disgusting. All right, please, can we stop this latex glove trend? that is just infecting our food establishments everywhere. Whoopi Goldberg was exactly right on this. And I really wish we could see an end to the latex glove takeover of food service in this country. All right, everyone, hope you enjoyed that episode. Make sure you follow us on um, all the usual places, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts, watch us on X. Tell everyone about the show and we will see you back here next week for the next episode of The Steve Hilton Show.